Oops, sorry. Good evening, everyone. Good evening. Hello. Hi. We're going to get started in a couple of minutes. Um, I'm, my name is John Donvan. I'm the host and the moderator of Intelligence Squared, and we're delighted that on such a beautiful night, uh, everyone here has agreed to come and sit in the basement to hear this debate. Uh, it's a really a testament to, to the um, quality of the debaters we have and to the seriousness of the topic and to your commitment as members of the audience to, to hear this kind of program. I uh, just want to ask people who are coming in now to fill the seats down toward the front, if possible. And I just wanted to talk through with you a few, especially for newcomers, um, to talk with you about uh, specifically about your role as members of the audience. Um, there are two things that we ask you to do as audience members, um, specifically. And one of them is we, ask, we enroll you as the judges in this debate. We ask you to vote during the debate to tell us which side you feel is presenting the better argument or has presented the better argument. And the way that we have you vote is we go to the keypads at your seat. Um, tonight it's on the right-hand side of your seat. And I will read out the motion is, what the motion is, which is that China does capitalism better than the U.S., and if you feel the side that has argued for the motion, has argued most persuasively, most strongly, we ask you to press number one. If you feel the other side has been better, you push number two. And if you feel that you're undecided, you push number three. And in this vote, it's going to be the second time we ask you to vote that night, we really ask you not necessarily to tell us what your personal conviction is, but our goal is to raise the level of public discourse here by holding these guys accountable for actually presenting arguments, for actually presenting ideas and logic and fact, not just assertion. And so what we're asking you to do is to judge the team that actually did that job better, regardless of where you might personally feel about the issue as you come in off of the street. So we have you vote twice. The first time, we ask you to tell us what your opinion is as you come in off the street. And at the end, we ask you to vote again to tell us which side you think presented the better argument. And the team that's moved its numbers the most is how we decide the winner. The other way in which as, uh, you involved, uh, you're involved as members of the audience is that in the middle of the debate, we come to you and ask you to ask questions to the debaters. And um, what will happen is a microphone will, microphones will be available in the audience. If you raise your hand uh, and I call on you, I'd ask you to stand up and to identify yourself, particularly if you're a member of the news media, and to try really to ask a question that's on the topic that will move forward the discussion of how you're going to vote on this particular motion. So this is a debate where there's a wide range of ex uh, external issues that could get involved. And if I hear that kind of question, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not accept it with respect. I'm looking for a question that will pr prompt these guys to, to move forward on the discussion of this, uh, of this motion. I also want to say I, I turned down, I have a two-part question, that kind of thing, because we really want to give more people a chance. So if you have two parts to your question, pick a part. And, and we're going to go with that one. And also, I really want to persuade you to really ask a question, um, not to debate the debaters. But I'm fine with you know, stating a very, very, very brief premise, one or two sentences. But then really ask a question. And you'll know it's a question, because a question mark goes properly at the end of it. Um, and the other thing I want to say, uh, because we ha we're, we're broadcasting in a lot of different directions tonight, uh, we have been for several years now uh, been recorded and, and turned into an NPR program that's heard on 200 stations across the nation. We're also carried on television by Channel 13 um, and WLIW. We're being live tweeted tonight by a lot of people, by Slate, 
Slate.com. Uh, Slate is our media partner uh, by Fora TV um, and um, uh, also by WNET. And because of that, there's microphones all over the place to pick up the sound. And because of the microphones, we have to ask you to turn off all of your electronic stuff all the way to off, with one exception. If you're tweeting, uh, there's probably not going to be enough of you to cause critical mass and cause interference. If you're tweeting, that would be fine. We are live tweeting the debate. And you can follow our tweet of the debate by going to at IQ2US. And if um, you want to join the debate by tweeting, and particularly to people who are now watching via live streaming, you can join the debate by going, uh, t t texting, tweeting, hashtag IQ2US. Um, and so that's, that's it. Uh, we really are delighted to have all of you here. Uh, our numbers keep growing. We're sold out tonight. Uh, it seems we're doing something right. So in just a couple of minutes, our debaters will come to the stage. One other thing, because we're doing the broadcast, there will be a couple of moments where I'm going to have to ask you to spontaneously applaud. Uh, if I do one of these, I think that reads applaud. And so if I do one of those, it would be great if you could applaud when we come back from breaks and those sorts of things for the radio broadcast and the television. So I hope you all enjoy yourselves. And now let's welcome our debaters to the stage. And now I would like to introduce the chairman of Intelligence Squared U.S., Mr. Robert Rosencrantz. Uh, thank you. Welcome. Uh, it's good to have you here. My role in these proceedings is to frame the debate. So China does capitalism better than America. Capitalism is the polar opposite of communism. So how can communist China be said to do capitalism better than America. It's because China is communist in name only. In most of the ways that matter, the Chinese eco economy is a model of capitalism. Firms and individuals are largely free to buy the labor, technology, and raw materials they need to produce the products they want in, in open competition with others and to sell them at whatever prices the market will bear. If you include government-controlled firms, Goods produced in a market system account for a substantially larger share of China's output than they do in America. Capitalism requires capital to invest, and over the past 30 years, China has saved nearly half of its total output and has invested most of those savings in capital assets, plants, machinery, infrastructure, and the like. In contrast, the American savings rate, rates have been puny only recently reaching 6% of uh, total production. And the promise of capitalism is that by allowing individuals and firms the freedom to act, resources will be allocated efficiently, and the wealth and consumption of most people in the society will grow. China has done a phenomenal job of keeping that promise. Over the past 30 years, its economy has grown approximately tenfold while America's has barely doubled. In what respects, then, does America do capitalism better? Clearly, the rule of law is much more developed here. Property rights are more secure, and we encourage innovation by protecting intellectual property. As a result, the American economy is far more innovative. 
the Googles and Facebooks and Apples of the world are American companies. Nothing comparable has come from China. We permit individuals to move freely in search of jobs and opportunities. For hundreds of millions of rural Chinese, there is no such freedom. Corruption and abuse of power by government officials is far more prevalent in China. And crony capitalism, which is certainly an aspect of American life, is absolutely rife in China. As usual, there is a lot to be said on both sides. And in the final analysis, this debate is not just about economics, but about which system, American democratic capitalism or Chinese state capitalism, will be the model that developing companies, countries around the world admire and seek to emulate. We have an outstanding panel of experts tonight, and it's my privilege to turn the evening over to them and to our moderator, John Donvan. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. And I, I would just like to invite one more round of applause for Robert Rosencrantz for making this possible. Yes or no to this statement. China does capitalism better than America. Well, perception can say a lot. And in a recent poll, 53% of Americans identified China as the world's leading financial power. Only 33% said the U.S. is number one. But guess what? The U.S. is still number one. The 53% who say that China is first are wrong. Or are they simply early? I'm John Donvan. Welcome to another debate from Intelligence Squared U.S. Our motion is China does capitalism better than America. We have four superbly qualified debaters, two teams of two, who will argue for this motion and against this motion. We go in three rounds of debate, then the audience votes to choose the winner, and only one team wins. Our debaters, each connected in his own way to the China story, Orville Schell, who heads the Center for U.S.-China Relations at the Asia Society. Your partner is Peter Schiff, who heads Euro-Pacific Capital and who has advised Ron Paul. <laughs> On the side arguing against the motion that China does capitalism better than America, Ian Bremmer, founder and president of Eurasia Group. <laughs> and your partner, Minxing Pei, professor of government at Claremont McKenna College. Orville Schell, many hats on your head. You are a journalist and now an in-house thinker at the Asia Society. You were coming and going to China already 30 years ago when doing such a thing here was seen uh, as really beyond exotic. And then before that, as an undergraduate at Harvard, you studied Far Eastern history. So since you were a teenager, China has counted for you. Where, what sparked this interest for you in the first place? Well, paradoxically, I think it was the fact that you couldn't go there. And that lent a kind of a, uh, a kind of a quality uh, to it that uh, was somewhat mysterious and begged effort to uh, bridge that gap. Is that fun over now? No, because China still uh, is a fickle mistress and a very uh, difficult place to finally divine. All right. Your debating partner is Peter Schiff. Peter is CEO of Euro-Pacific Capital. And Peter, you advised Ron Paul in 2008 and talk about being right early. You caused, called the U.S. housing bubble long before most people even saw it coming. And you're a guy who makes predictions, and you speak the language of inevitability, and you don't give yourself a lot of room to back away. 
in case you turn out to be wrong. But on China-U.S., what if you turn out to be wrong? Well, first of all, in fairness uh, to Congressman Ron Paul, he really didn't need my advice. He, he should be giving uh, advice to his opponents. But as far as, as China, be, being wrong in, one res in, what, in what respect? Are you talking about in my investments in China? For example? Um, yeah, you know, I, I think that China's story is, is, is unfolding, and I think there is tremendous opportunity uh, for investors to make money as China uh, continues on its journey uh, towards capitalism. And I think they are abandoning some of the, uh, uh, you know, the, the ideas of the past, not necessarily in, in favor of what America is today, hopefully maybe more of what America used to be in the past. Uh, but, uh, you know, I mean, if I'm, if I'm wrong, if uh, the political winds blow in a different direction and, and, and China doesn't live up to the potential that I think it has, I mean, I, you know, I've got investments all around the world. It's not, it's not only China. <laughs> I am but, so uh, relieved. Thank you, Peter Schiff. I just want to bring it over to the other side. Our motion is China does capitalism better than America. And, Ian Bremer, you are arguing against that motion. Ian, you, uh, you went to college when you were 16. You won a MacArthur 15. Fellowship at... 15. 15. I, I lied about my age. At age 22. Yeah. MacArthur Fellowship at 22. Hoover National Fellow at 25. At 28, you founded a global risk consultancy called the Eurasia Group. So in Ian Bremer years, it's like the rest of us are dead and buried. But, <laughs> so with all the work and all the thinking you do, where do you rank China among the things that you think about? Oh, uh, you know, over the last couple of years, we've been spending our time thinking about the United States in terms of the uh, financial crisis, the European crisis, and, of course, now everyone wants to know about Iran. And, of course, the fact is, and this is one thing that all four of us, I think, will agree on, the most important question that we need to answer is ultimately the disposition of China over the next five, ten years. We've taken our eye off that ball. It's going to get back. And your partner, also saying that China does not do capitalism better than America, Minxing Pei. Minxing, you are a professor at Claremont McKenna. You're born in China, but you've been here 27 years and counting. You're a dual citizen. You also have another duality. Uh, you're a political scientist with a Harvard PhD, but you also have a master's in creative writing. So what does that tell us? Well, What's the aspiration? Uh, uh, first of all, I want to correct. Uh, uh, I only have uh, U.S. citizenship. The Chinese government would not allow me to uh -huh. have dual citizenship. Uh, well, being uh, having two terminal degrees uh, gives me enormous advantage because most political scientists uh, cannot write clearly. And when, because I've, uh, I've had this creative writing degree, I can write more clearly than many of my colleagues. All right. Well, and, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Minxing. And let's let this debate begin. We have explained that we want to have you vote two times tonight. You, our judges, are you, our live audience, serve as our judges. Uh, we have you vote now. Uh, your conviction on this motion. We have you vote again at the end of the debate to tell us which side you think has actually presented the better argument. So, if you go to the keypads at your seat, our motion is China does capitalism better than America. If you agree with the motion, if you're with this side at this point, you press number one. If you disagree with this side, you push number two. And if you're undecided, you push number three. And you can ignore the other keys. And also, if you press the wrong key, uh, just correct it, and the system will lock in, uh, will lock in your, last, your last vote. And so we're going to hold on to the, uh, that result, and we're going to present both results at the very end of the debate in the moment that we decide, that you decide who the victor is. Okay.
On to round one. Round one is opening statements from each debater in turn. These statements are uninterrupted. They are seven minutes each. And to speak first for the motion, Peter Schell, I'm sorry, to speak first for the motion, Peter Schiff, CEO for Euro-Pacific Capital. You can, no, we, I just explained, we save them to the end. They both come at the end and, yeah. But the suspense will kill you throughout the All evening. Right. <laughs> See the timer. All right. As, well, I, uh, I, I'm, I'm going to say some nice things about you for a moment. Oh, okay. <laughs> Go right ahead. Very briefly. Peter Schiff. <laughs> Peter, Schiff oh. is, Peter Schiff is CEO for Euro-Pacific Capital. He writes books. He has a radio show. The radio show is named after you, uh, so there's no burden of false modesty or reticence here. <laughs> Luckily for us, ladies well, and gentlemen. I'm the only one on the show. Ladies and gentlemen, Peter Schiff. That's all you can come up with. All right, as, uh, as was stated, uh, China is a communist nation in, in name only. It's not communist in the way the, the Soviet Union was, was communist. And unfortunately, uh, China kind of gives communism a good name in a way that we give capitalism a bad name. And I thought maybe a more appropriate way to have framed this debate is not, you know, does China do capitalism better but it might be, might be, does America do capitalism worse than China? Because neither modern America or China does capitalism anywhere near as well as we did it in the 19th century. But the problem is China is closer to what America used to be than America is today. I mean, if you think about America at the end of the 19th century, in the year 1900, the government in this country spent 3% of the GDP on all levels, 3%. Today, the American government spends better than 40% of our GDP. If you look at China, it's about half as much of the GDP spent. If you look at taxes, which is a real measure of freedom, you know, back in America in the 1900s, we had no income taxes. We had no corporate income taxes, no state income taxes. Americans were truly free in the sense that they got to keep the production, the fruits of their labor. If you look at modern America and modern China, taxes are very high. They're just a lot higher here than they are in China. Uh, individual income taxes. The typical American pays a much higher share of his income in taxes when you take income taxes on the federal and state level and payroll taxes and the employer portion that's passed on, paying much higher income taxes on a, on a personal level than the typical Chinese worker does. If you look at corporations, our corporate income tax now is what, 35%, China's 25 We tax dividends at 15%, they're at 10%. So a significant difference in the amount of money that the individuals are allowed to keep. You know, the American government is taking a much larger share of what people earn, and that's what's freedom. It's, it's, it's keeping the, the fruits of your labor. Also, if you look at the regulatory environment in both China and the United States, I would argue that a young entrepreneur in America today is going to face much greater hurdles, bigger obstacles in his path that have been placed there by the government than you would have in China. The cost of complying with all the rules and regulations in America exceeds the costs in China. And not just the rules and regulations, but surviving the litigation that is a byproduct of those rules and regulations. A lot of the things that the government does, if employers don't do them properly, they open themselves up to all sorts of lawsuits, not just by government, but by their employees or their customers. And you don't face that kind of problem to anywhere near that extent in China. So if you look at it from the point of view of taxation, you look at it from the point of view of regulation, sure, both countries have a lot of regulation. I mean, China is not as capitalistic as Hong Kong, which is a part of China, 
but is more capitalistic than the mainland. But if you're going to compare it to the United States, the level of taxation, the level of government spending, if you look at the debt, I mean, America has, your, our government has an enormous debt. Our debt is now 100% of our GDP, and that is if you just count the funded portion of our debt. If you look at the off-budget items, the unfunded a portion of our debt, it's enormous. The Chinese government doesn't have anywhere near that kind of liability. In fact, if you looked at China uh, and the United States and just compare the results of their economy, China is today the world's largest creditor nation. America is the world's biggest debtor nation. China has large trade surpluses. America has enormous trade deficits. So if you thought about them as a nation, China has got, I mean, if you, look, if you thought about the nation as a country, or as, a co or as a corporation, rather, China has a lot of assets on its balance sheet and lots of income, lots of profits. America is loaded up with liabilities, and we're hemorrhaging red ink. We have huge losses. So if, if you think that uh, America is more capitalist than, than China or China is more socialist, then you must think that socialism is a, is a better economic system because, after all, the Chinese are more successful if you want to measure it by the accumulation of assets, by the, the, uh, the positive uh, balance of trade. So, and I don't, I don't think that there is a way for a country, if you remember uh, the Soviet Union, which was a communist country, the Soviet Union didn't make anything, they didn't produce anything. Uh, we constantly had to give them money so that they can feed themselves. Pretty much everything is being made in China today, in the United States. They have this enormous trade surplus, and more importantly, they are accumulating massive uh, savings. If you look at China, they, you know, they have a savings rate of close to 50%. We have a savings rate of basically negative. In fact, we rely in America on a Ponzi scheme called Social Security. They don't have Social Security in China. Uh, they don't have a lot of these big government programs that we have uh, in, in the United States. Look at, our, look at our monetary system. I mean, we have the Federal Reserve price-fixing interest rates at practically zero, and all the macroeconomic imbalances that we create, we micromanage our economy through our tax code. We've got the U.S. government subsidizing or guaranteeing almost 100 percent of all the mortgages in the United States, so it's not up to the free market. Credit isn't being allocated by the market. It's being allocated by government. The government is deciding who should get money and who shouldn't get money and, and who it should subsidize and who it should penalize. It does all of this through the tax code and through the Federal Reserve. Yes, you've got uh, something similar going on in China, only in China I think it's a more, more above board. Yes, you know, there is government and you know that government's involved and maybe you have to uh, uh, bribe the right uh, uh, bureaucrat, but the same thing is going on in the United States. We're just not as above board with it. And if you think about the partnership that government has uh, with, with business in the United States, most of the laws and regulations, and I work in a highly regulated field in the securities industry, but this is the same with industries all over the United States. You have all these regulatory bodies that are created for the specific purpose of destroying competition and trying to prevent smaller firms from coming into existence or competing with these large firms that have captured all the regulatory bodies uh, that oversee them. And that is a function of government. And it's a combination of big business working with big government to stifle innovation and to stifle a, a, a capitalism. And when you have the U.S. government taking such an enormous share of our GDP and taking such an enormous share of our tax, of our output in taxation and, and then trying to regulate it and micromanage it from Washington, D.C., 
We're not even close to being a capitalist country anymore in the United States. The unfortunate thing is that China is closer, but what's more important is the direction in which the pendulum is swinging. In, a, in China, it's swinging towards capitalism. Unfortunately, in America, it's swinging away. Thank you, Peter Schiff. Our motion is China does capitalism better than America, and our next debater is going to speak against the motion. Ian Bremer, his company Eurasia Group, makes its money by helping companies figure out when investing overseas is risky or not, and so being right about China is practically his business model. Ladies and gentlemen, Ian Bremer. First of all, Orville said that China is a fickle mistress, and so getting China right is hard. And one thing we do all need to admit is that the level of volatility in outcomes in China over the next 10 to 20 years is vastly greater than the level of volatility in the United States or in Europe or Japan. Can China make it? Can they fundamentally transform their economic and political system? A country of 1.3 billion people. We know they need to do it. World Bank just made it very clear. The Chinese government admitted it themselves. Doesn't mean they can do it. It's never been done before. It's a bet. I bet against, but it's a bet. If you have to make a bet, you bet on the United States. A lot of people do. That's why the U.S. still has the world's reserve currency. I don't know, even know where to start on this, frankly, having just heard that China needs to bribe the right bureaucrats, but same in the United States. We're not as above board about that. That's on its face ludicrous, right? Uh, China is a system where if you want to do well at the highest levels, 52% of the GDP is – 62% of the GDP is state-owned enterprises. Absolutely, there's no rule of law. There's no transparency. You don't have as many regulations in China as the U.S. That is true. Does that mean China does capitalism better? No, it means that if you're China and you want to move a village and build a road, you can. It is not clear to me that that is capitalism in its most effective or even most rapacious form. That's the state doing what it wants to do for the state. That's the problem. You want to talk about state intervention, we've got it. We've got it in China. Look, it's unfortunate to me we're even debating this. Five years ago, we wouldn't. It shames me. It shames me as an American because there are people out there that believe that the United States can't do capitalism as well as China. There are countries now that are doing capitalism better than the United States. If we were having this debate about Canada, we wouldn't have as much of a problem. We wouldn't, right? And a lot of fronts. I'm, willing to get, look, I'm not saying the United States is worse on everything. I'm saying that life increasingly, if you look at issues like the deficit for the U.S., you look at financial regulations, I'm not going to stand behind all of that. But I am going to go after China because ultimately we have a problem. Look, the Chinese system is not just capitalist. It's state capitalist. State capitalism is a system where the state is the principal actor in the economy. And it uses markets ultimately for their own political gain. If it turns out that profit is useful for their political gain, they'll go for it. If it turns out it isn't, they'll go against it. And that's true whether we're talking about Chinese firms or whether we're talking about Western firms. I mean, Facebook's doing a pretty good IPO, but they're not in China. Why? China doesn't want Facebook in China. It'd make a lot of money. It'd make a lot of money for China. That's not the point, right? That's not capitalism. That's a problem. Ultimately, when we've seen state capitalism work globally, it works until it fails. 
And it works because despite the fact that the state is massively inefficient, and I suspect Peter admits that the state is massively inefficient, and it is in lots of forms, but it, it can hide its inefficiency through cheap stuff. Argentina was state capitalist, looked as good as the United States in the Western Hemisphere over 100 years ago until they ran out of cheap land. And then they started defaulting. Venezuela looked great on cheap oil. Not so much anymore, right? China's looked great for 34 years on the basis of cheap labor. China will ultimately run out of cheap labor. So what we have in China is this extraordinary car with a huge engine going very fast down a long road. And that road has been straight for 34 years. But coming up, there's a big turn in the road. And we've never seen steering. <laughs> now, maybe, maybe, thank you, Mom, maybe, <laughs> maybe they have steering, but we don't know. And the fact is that if you are China, right, there's one thing you're going to have a very hard time doing. There are no more Zhurongjis and Deng Xiaopengs in China. You don't have strong individual leadership. You have leadership by consensus. Individuals that are moving together very incrementally. They're very cautious. They understand the importance of the stakes they're playing for. The one thing that you will not do well is go after your own intrinsic interests, the state-owned enterprises that are providing you money. That's where the inefficiency is going to be as labor gets more expensive. That's where the inefficiency will be when the United States and other Western multinationals stop giving them technology to rip off. Another problem with Chinese state capitalism is it creates enemies. You know, there are a lot of folks around Asia. They see the Chinese economic miracle, but they're begging the United States to maintain a presence. Why? Because China does capitalism better than the United States? I don't think so. We got to watch what people do, not what people say, what they do. Did you see that piece in the Wall Street Journal talked about the disposition of Chinese millionaires? How over 50% of Chinese millionaires say they prefer to live in the United States than China? And yeah, it's about quality of life. Yeah, it's about the environment. Yeah, it's about opportunities for their kids. It's also about no rule of law in China and worrying about corruption and the sanctity of their assets over the long term. Your assets are okay tomorrow. The United States were over litigious. China doesn't have that problem. You don't have to worry about lawyers in China. You have to worry about someone ripping off your stock or, or being forced out of the country or not being heard from again. Now, maybe Peter believes that those 50-plus percent of Chinese millionaires are stupid because ultimately the United States is in decline, and so they shouldn't be coming here, in which case, fine, but then China's millionaires aren't that bright. Those are the entrepreneurs, so we shouldn't bet on them either way. You're in a catch-22, sir. <laughs> You know, I'm interested in what the Chinese do with their money. I understand that the Chinese are saying that they don't like the U.S. dollars of reserve currency, but where are they putting their cash? In the U.S. Now, Ron Paul and Peter say they shouldn't do that, and then we're in big trouble. Okay, well, when are they going to stop? Because I don't believe the Chinese are stupid. For me, that's not an interesting analytical model. For me, what's interesting is presuming the Chinese understand their interests, and they're putting all that money into treasuries because they believe that's safe over the long term. We are entering an environment of fear. We're entering an environment of volatility. When things get more volatile, we don't just bet on go-go growth anymore. We put our money under the mattresses. Central banks do that too. And in that environment, the world's largest economy, also ultimately the most resilient, United States of America. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ian Bremmer. 
is our motion, China Does Capitalism Better Than America? We have heard the first two speakers, and now on to the third. Uh, I've lost a page here. Well, Orville Schell, I'm just going to, I'm going to vamp. But Orville Schell is uh, head of the US Center for U.S.-China Relations at the Asia Society. You have also written something like nine books that have the word China in the title, and some that don't have China in the title. You know what you're talking about. Ladies and gentlemen, Orville Schell. Well, I find myself in the awkward position, being an American, deeply believing in this country and its ability to innovate and in its entrepreneurial powers to defend uh, a Marxist-Leninist economy. And I beg you to marshal every bit of scrutiny you can to my argument, and please convince me I am wrong by voting against me at the end of this debate. I would say that the comparison between capitalism in the United States and China is as much divided by the fact that capitalism here has in many ways failed its promise. And there, in a very counterintuitive way, one we hardly have expected, the Chinese Communist Party has managed to graft on a certain kind of guerrilla mobility under Leninist rigidity to make their system uh, actually function in a way which I think all of us would agree over the past three decades has been quite extraordinary, something none of us who were standing in the middle of Tiananmen Square in 1989 when there were a million people demonstrating there thought could ever possibly happen. So I think uh, if we look at America, we find a country that is in quite a bit of psychological self-doubt at this particular moment. We find a country that has had much of its government, many of its leaders, uh, besieged by irrationality, religiosity, uh, they don't believe in evolution. They don't believe in climate change. We cannot pass a simple measure in Congress to extend the national debt, which is not going to not happen. How can a government that is so paralyzed by its own inability to see reason, how can it be the custodian over that critical part of every economy that a government must preside over. This is not to say that we don't venerate entrepreneurs. We don't venerate innovation. And we don't believe in a free economy. But let me read you just uh, simply what Adam Smith had to say, the great patron saint of laissez-faire capitalism. He said that when sec the security of the whole society is at stake, Natural liberty of a few individuals which might endanger that security ought to be restrained by the laws of all governments, the most free as well as the most des uh, despotical. And I think it is precisely here that we have failed. And by doing so, we have lent a greater credence to this curious cryptic 
hybrid version of Leninist capital, which China has employed, uh, to quite a bit of success, I would have to say. So let's quickly just look um, at what we see in China. Uh, I spoke of the psychological dimension of the problem in this country, and I think everybody in this room feels it. Uh, there is a sense of, uh, I think, um, uh, lassitude. At the same time, greed is quite a, 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 a force aloft in the land. Uh, there's a great deal of self-deception at work. If you look at China, who's running the government in China now? They're all engineers. In many ways, the very things that we used to impute to China as a great weakness, namely a over-reliance and ideology are now the very things that are hampering our own country while China, governed by engineers and technocrats, tends to look at reason. There are no climate deniers in China. I have never spoken to a Chinese who doubted evolution. And yet the ranks of the American political uh, houses of Congress are replete with these people. And they're making decisions which govern how we live and govern the American economy. China also has managed in a way that I think uh, it deserves our esteem to combine the public with the private and to act when things need to be done. When a stimulus program needs to be enacted, they look at the facts and they enact it. Do you remember when we looked at five-year plans as quaint kind of throwbacks to some retrograde period of Stalinist economics? Well, I think the United States could do with a good five-year plan. We can't plan for three months ahead. We have no ability even to execute policy, much less long-range policy. If you go to Washington, you find more and more people utterly despairing of writing policy documents. Why? because nobody can do anything with them. I think this ability of China to marshal facts rationally, to marshal its resources and make policy and allocate capital where it needs to be allocated in times of crisis is something that our own country could learn from. I want to read a quick quote from Henny Sender from the Financial Times. The combination of Chinese SOEs and debt from state-owned banks is a powerful alliance that will increasingly resonate outside of China as well as within it. I think that's an interesting statement from a paper that's basically a laissez-faire capitalist paper. So finally, I would say that we would do well not to assume that China has nothing to teach the United States it may be that this system will not endure in the future. It has many structural weaknesses. But to date, I would say it has been ascending while our own form of capitalism, replete with the weaknesses that you all well know, has been in a state of decline. And whether we have the ability to grab it at the last minute from its final collapse is a question uh, which will remain for years to come. Thank you, Orville Schell. Our motion is China does capitalism better than America, and our final debater speaking against the motion uh, speaks 
the Chinese language better than anyone on this stage. He has the advantage of having been born there, but he has been living here uh, for decades, a professor of government at Claremont McKenna. The titles of his books and articles on China's future use phrases like China's trapped transition, looming stagnation, so we don't need to ask what he really thinks. Uh, but here's more of what he does think. Ladies and gentlemen, Min Ching Pei. I'm not going to speak in Chinese. Uh, uh, I think the impression that China is doing capitalism better than the U.S. Uh, is understandable. That's because it's a very superficial impression. Uh, one reason why that impression is widespread is that China has been growing fast. There's a reason China is growing fast. Low-income countries tend to grow much faster than rich countries because they have much bigger growth potential. Just think of two things. Con uh, consumption of energy. Chinese consumption of energy is about one-fourth of the U.S. consumption. So the Chinese, if they consume more c uh, energy, they will grow a lot faster. The same with steel production. China consumes one-tenth of the steel an average American consumes. So if they want to reach American consumption level, they need to build a lot of steel plants, and that makes economic growth. So first of all, do not judge whether a country does capitalism better or worse by just looking at its gross numbers. Second is that when you compare the two countries, the U.S. and China, you have to look at facts. This presentation is nothing but man the facts. So what are the facts? If you look at corporate profits, U.S. companies are far more profitable than Chinese companies. And that is to think that we can trust Chinese accounting. <laughs> uh, but, uh, and then, then you look at tax collection. I have to disagree with Peter. He said that Chinese, uh, the Chinese state collects less taxes than the U.S. The opposite is true. The U.S. government takes about federal state about 30% of GDP. The Chinese government collects 35%. But that's not the end of the story. Because in the U.S., you actually get some back, something back from the government in the form of Social Security, health care, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, Medicaid. In China, you get very little back because the bulk of government taxes is spent on government consumption. Administration, if you go to China and get treated to a 20-course meal, you say, that's great, that's Chinese hospitality. But don't forget, it's being paid for by Chinese taxpayers. Not in the USA. You do not get that kind of treatment when you go to Washington, D.C. <laughs> and then you look at uh, sort of whether China's growth is uh, using less natural resources. And here the U.S. is three times as more efficient as China because for every dollar of GDP produced in China, China has to consume three times more in terms of its natural resources, water, clean air, land, the U.S., in other words, is a lot more efficient. Then you look at international comparison. And here we are using third-party numbers. And here China does not look nearly as good as the U.S. Uh, corruption. Uh, there's an NGO based in Berlin called Transparency International. It publishes every year a global index called uh, Corruption Perception Index. On this index, the U.S. is ranked 24th in terms of, uh, as the least corrupt country in the world. 
China is ranked 75. So if you think our average politician in Washington is corrupt, wait until meet a Chinese politician. <laughs> then you look at overall economic competitiveness because capitalism is known for its efficiency and competitiveness. Here, the U.S. is ranked nice number one, number five. What about China? China is number 26, so way, way behind the U.S. Then you look at something like innovation ranking. The U.S. is number seven. China is 29. You look at ease of doing business. This is by the World Bank because a really capitalist country should be one in which it is very easy to do business. Overall ranking for the U.S. is number four in the world. China is number 91. Then starting on business, U.S. is number 13. China is number 151. <laughs> Getting credit, the U.S. number four. China is number 767. The list goes on and on, and I don't want to bore you. Finally, I want, want to imagine, what will the Politburo members think about this debate? If for some reason... They, they've learned that in New York City, they are debating whether China does capitalism better than the U.S. I think their first reaction is not to laugh. <laughs> <laughs> then the second reaction, they say, the Americans are really easy to impress. <laughs> you stage an Olympics, they think China is number one. <laughs> you build the world's largest high-speed rail at enormous cost, they think the the U.S. is falling behind. Then you lend the Americans $2 trillion. They think China is definitely number one. So the second, uh, 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 the third thought uh, that would come to their mind is that the Americans have very short memories. Because when Sputnik was launched, everybody thought the Soviet Union was to dominate the world. And then in uh, the late 1980s, I think in this city people should have good memories about who was buying the Rockefeller Center, right? Japan was dominating the headlines. Everybody thought Japan was doing capitalism better than the U.S. Now look at what, where Japan is after 20 years. So I think what we are saying, seeing here is not that China does capitalism better than the U.S. We are experiencing a period of self-doubt. I'm sure the real issue is not about China. The real issue is about the U.S. U.S. can do capitalism much better than it does. But China, at least for the moment and for the foreseeable future, will not be doing capitalism anywhere better, anywhere close to the U.S. in terms of competition, efficiency, even social justice. Thank you. Thank you, Minting Pei. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. When we return, the debaters go head-to-head -head in round two. We'll be right back. And now we are right back. Um, we're just going to have these lecterns removed, and then I'm going to raise my hand for a round of applause and imagine uh, commercials are playing somewhere. Okay, let's start again. Thank you. 
Now on to round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. This is where the debaters uh, address each other directly and answer questions from the audience and from me. We have here two teams of two who are arguing out this motion, China does capitalism better than America. We've heard the team arguing in support of the motion, Peter Schiff and Orville Schell, um, basically saying um, that China does capitalism better because there's actually more freedom to do things uh, that involve capitalism, that there are fewer regulations, that there are lower taxes. It is not pure capitalism, and they're not arguing that, but they're saying that it's more pure than the U.S. has had in the last 100 years. China's amazing growth rate really seals the argument for them, but they also make the point that possibly uh, an economy uh, operating under the uh, apparatus of what we call democracy in this country has its downside, and they suggest that maybe a little planning is not such a bad thing. The team arguing against the motion, Ian Bremmer and Minxing Pei, uh, they're making the argument that what's Ch what China's doing, even if it could be called capitalism, is something that's probably cruising for a crash. Um, that when the government is the biggest player in the market, as they argue that it is, point out that it is, this tends to lead to corruption and to cronyism and ultimately to uh, exposure of the lack of real innovation. Um, they basically are also making something of a, of a uh, hare and hedgehog argument and pointing out that, that China is the hare and it's in a good dash right now, but that the U.S. is the hedgehog plodding, plodding along steadily and more reliably. So I want to take a question from this side's argument to that side, and that's that argument that what we're seeing from China, this enormous growth rate, your opponents have pointed out, number one is the result of China coming off a much lower baseline. Um, and... Uh, when, when things get really volatile, things can really fall apart there. And they're essentially saying that what's happening in China over the long haul is a blip. Is it a blip? Peter well, Schiff. I mean, first of all, there are a lot of countries that are starting on low baselines that are not having any kind of economic growth at all. So the difference is you do have more capitalism now in China, and it's that freedom, it's that mo those market forces that are responsible for the growth, not that because they're poor, because there were plenty of people that were poor and that didn't grow at all. As far as whether the trajectory is sustainable. I think not only is it sustainable, but I think it's going to get better because the real country that's headed for a crisis is America. And I think what's dragging the Chinese down is their currency peg. They're loaning America all this money so America can keep buying the products that Americans really can't afford. And so as a result, the Chinese are debasing their currency and they're creating a lot of inflation, which is destabilizing their economy and I think undermining the standard of living of their own citizens, which would be rising even faster if the Chinese government simply let the RMB rise in value, let the dollar tank, if the Chinese government didn't take so much of the Chinese production and just loan it to America so that it could be squandered on big government and consumption. But I think eventually so, so, when they, so if that is so unwise by the Chinese government, is this a flip period for them then? Well, I think they're gonna they're gonna figure this out and, and, and they're gonna they're not going to play this game anymore, and the real crash is coming here because then interest rates skyrocket, the dollar tanks, consumer prices go through the roof, and we have our Greek moment, only there's no Europe to bail us out. Ian Bremer, do you want to respond? Well, yeah, we're not heading for a Greek moment. I mean, comparing us with Greece is, is almost as ludicrous as comparing yeah, us with Yeah, it's not fair China. to the Greeks. Um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think you even believe that, but leave it aside. Um, Look, I mean, you got to read my books. No, I, I'll, I'll get there. I'll get there. Um, look, with the, 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 the United States um, has so many strong intrinsic advantages in terms of not just 
the matter of where the dollar sits, but also, I mean, 30% of the world's calories come from the United States. People are increasingly fighting over food. That's a real problem for China. The environment in China is absolutely falling apart. If you look at environment-adjusted GDP, it's so much worse than the growth you see presently. We already heard from Minchin about just how much more profitable American multinationals are than Chinese SOEs, and yet that China's moving more in the direction towards SOEs, not towards private sector, especially since 2008. Um, all of these things are problematic, and the ability of the Chinese to suddenly make a decision to go away from the dollar, you have to go into something. What exactly are you going into? You're going into the euro in an enormous way? I don't see that in terms of massive growth opportunities. You're going into Japan? We already said we had two lost decades there. You're going to go into gold or hard commodities? You can do some of that. You can only do so much. And as you go away from the dollar, you, of course, ruin the position that you have in the rest of those dollars. So China's not going to well, do that. They haven't. And they're not going Orville to. Michelle, let's bring you into the debate. Um, you know, this isn't exclusively about one country or another. We're doing a comparison here. And we're talking about recent history, not an idealized America. And we'd be very foolish to idealize China. And I think what we have to reckon with is the chances of each country finding a new state of equipoise, the United States included. It is not a foregone conclusion that we're going to pull this thing out of the, out of the water. I think if this country cannot grasp reason again, uh, it doesn't matter how good or bad China will be. China may have an unfair advantage. I think what's going on in Washington right now is so utterly mad and broken that I put no confidence whatsoever in their ability to play that essential role that every government, and I may disagree with you here, Peter, but every government must play. And we are not playing it. And Orville Schell, you, you, in making that point before, you went on to say that you think that the model of planning, which we used to think was quite quaint and slightly ridiculous, maybe we should be looking at a new light now, Minxing Pei. What about that? Is a little planning a well, good thing uh, after all? Or China, a lot of planning? They, they plan a lot, except they do nothing about the plans they draw up. Because if you look at Chinese uh, uh, five-year plans, you think, my gosh, these guys are very strategic. Then five years later, and you do some kind of plan accounting, and you see what has been accomplished, very little. Because if they have actually followed through on their promises, China today will indeed be doing capitalism a lot better than the U.S. Peter Schiff. Well, I do you want to respond to that point. Well, not not that particular point, but there's there's some other points that he made earlier that <laughs> all I, right. that I that I <laughs> tell us what the point was and go for it. Well, the, well, first of all, one of the things that you you mentioned, you said that American citizens we get all kinds of benefits from our government that the Chinese citizens oh, yeah. don't get. Well, I would say that we get a lot more liability. If you try to figure out what each American share is of the national debt, it is enormous. So mm -hmm. what the government is giving the American people is debt. Uh, I, I would much rather, and if you're talking about capitalism, I mean, defending capitalism by saying we get Social Security. What's capitalistic about a centrally planned retirement system that's financed like Bernie Madoff ran his investment business? I think it's much better that the Chinese are free to keep their income and plan for their own retirement. Take on the question of whether the, the existence of Social Security compromises the U.S. claim to be capitalist. I think it's Peter's point. I don't think so because capitalism – produces efficiency, but it also has a lot of risks. Modern capitalist societies are a lot riskier than traditional agrarian societies because in a modern capitalist society, once you lose your job, 
you really have no source of income. You cannot grow your own potatoes. <laughs> Let me just say something about China. Uh, the debt we know about, because uh, Peter said that in the U.S., you, uh, uh, every citizen uh, gets a lot of, uh, uh, shoulders, is responsible for a lot of government debt. The same thing is true of China, because the Chinese national debt is actually higher than the American debt. In China, what are you talking about? Uh, okay. In China, the, the uh, nominal debt is low, 20%. But the Chinese government knows better than Bernie Madoff. Okay? Does a much better job in hiding its liabilities. It but, would, well, it we, would, we owe them over $2 trillion. No, no $2 trillion is not is foreign exchange reserve, and I'm... Well, that's $3 trillion if you want no, to look no, at their force. No, no, $3 trillion. Are you is suggesting that liabilities not, exceed that? Oh, the Chinese liability is about 80% of GDP. The U.S. public health debt is about 60 to 65%. The trouble with the Chinese people is that after paying taxes, having their government uh, incur so much debt, they get no social security. They get no social protection. So uh, that's why I think even capitalists are coming to this country to enjoy some kind of protection. Well, certainly. Or, or we'll show, uh, uh, wait a minute. Uh, China is implementing, trying to implement a health care system, a social security system. And you, when you say the Chinese people have gotten nothing out of the last 30 years of development, you have surely seen the infrastructure that China has built, which benefits everybody in some way or other. Or we'll take 10, 15 seconds to describe specifically the kind of infrastructure you're talking about. Housing, well, roads. You, you look at the highway system. You look at the rail system. We haven't built a tunnel in New York City since the 1920s and the 1930s. China's throwing these things up overnight. Bridges, you know, subway systems, uh, you name it. Now, I don't, I don't want to idealize China's system. But I do want to, uh, uh, you know, give credit where credit is due, and it is unfair to say that no benefit is derived from the amazing development and, of the last 30 years. Does, does, does this side concede oh. that point? Oh, no, uh, I don't concede that point at all. Well, it's well, not, it's also, Ian Bremer, yeah, I, do you want to come in on this? It's, I wouldn't say that. The, to say that Chinese get nothing, of course, is, is ludicrous. That's like comparing the United States to Greece. We don't want to do that, right? <laughs> They're clearly Chinese citizens are doing better on average than they were before. There's no question. Although, if you ask where a lot of the profitability from that development has gone, it's gone to the United States. I mean, you look at Apple, you look at the manufacturing iPad, $9 is $10 is captured by China. And about 60 goes back to Apple and its shareholders, most of whom are American. I like that trade. Right? I mean, there's a reason why American multinationals actually do better. Look, we have a problem in the United States that increasingly a large percentage of Americans, right, a book that I think you probably have read by Charles Murray, Coming Apart, increasingly, um, th you know, they're not doing as well. They don't have as much opportunity. We have to address that because if not, long term, those folks are going to get upset. But they're not going to be as upset as the hundreds of millions of Chinese that will eventually face a crash and will have no opportunity, yeah. no option to really revolt yeah, I mean, against. Yeah, right? A couple that, of things. I mean, first of all, you, know, you, Peter, you talk about the profits of the U.S. corporations. We'll see how, how real those profits are when interest rates go up and, and, and they're facing an entirely different environment. But you keep talking about living in America. Yes, I'm not saying that it's not better to live in America. We still live pretty good because we're able to borrow all this money. We have a phony economy that is perpetuated based on debt. When this debt bubble bursts 
and, and this whole thing comes toppling down, it's going to be a whole different story. I, I don't doubt that people would want to live in America giving our livings, giving our lifestyle, but that's going to change. You're not looking at what's, what's keeping it going. You're not looking at all this debt. And you're saying, well, the, the Chinese are going to throw good money after bad forever because they have no choice. They do have a choice. The more good money they throw after bad, the more money they're going to lose. And the Chinese are figuring this out. The, Chi- the Chinese are throwing good money after bad, and not just in the United States. They're doing it in China, too. They're building infrastructure, more and more infrastructure that Chinese people can't use, but they yeah, have but to keep the growth well, going. It's better, go than from, buying, it's better than buying treasuries. Well, I mean, if, if they want to talk it about which of those they, is comparatively hor- horrific, I mean, I don't know. We can have a long debate about I, that. I would the, prefer they did the, neither the, and just let their citizens keep their money. Okay, but, that, but, that's but they're not, not doing and, that. And they're trying to prop up the unsustainable U.S. economy. second point, if you want to talk about Chinese profitability compared to Americans, look at the few, the dozens of firms in China that are supposed to be some of the best in breed that have wanted to come to the United States to list. And they list, and, they sh- and we, we get inside the books, and we realize they're completely put, cooked, and they get in massive trouble. And even, you know, sort of billionaire, brilliant folks like John Paulson, who figured out the big short, yeah, you're, you know, uh, Peter, actually you, lose lots of money yeah, on that. We, that we do not have partner. these companies are Thanks. not anywhere near as sustainable or profitable as the Chinese government makes them out to be. And that is a fundamental structural problem. Orville, well, the real question is the sustainability of our own enterprise. Ian, you've just written a wonderful book called Every Nation for Itself. And I thought it very interesting to read the following. You talk about the serious psychological toll in this country of the financial crisis and the economic, near economic collapse. And you say, worse still is the fear that America's leaders can't fix these problems because the U.S. political system is broken beyond repair. Is it? No, that's the fear that they believe yeah. that. And you, don't, you believe that, that we will regain our sense and be able to restore reason to our decision-making and pull out of this nadir of... Uh, you know, I thought it was interesting that you brought up the fact that, you know, the United States government, you know, was tr- trying to get this $1.2, $1.4 trillion in reductions passed. The Democrats and Republicans had a basic agreement about it. Some of it was Iraq, some Afghanistan. Some was going to be increased airline fees. Some was going to be reductions in uh, agricultural subsidies. It was fairly easy to do. And at the last minute, they decided not to do it. But in part, the reason they decided not to do it is because they're not being pressured. In Europe, one second, in, I know you're excited. In Europe, <laughs> right, in, in Europe, right, they are being pressured and they're finally acting. And it, it got really ugly before it had to happen. Look, the, the unfortunate lesson that we are all learning since 2008, the world is getting faster, governments are not getting faster. And that's true in the United States. We're kicking the can. It's true in Europe. They've done a lot of kicking the can. But Japan, but the largest can getting kicked hardest down the road is the Chinese can, and that's by far the one I'd be most worried about. Peter Schiff. Well, um, if you – first looking at your discussions about debt, we we didn't have any serious discussions. That trillion dollars in cuts was an illusion. It was spread out over 10 years, so it's $100 billion a year in almost a $4 trillion budget, and it was simply reductions in the proposed rate of increases. So we we weren't even talking about – dealing with the problem. But you are right. We don't have to deal with it because both the Federal Reserve continues to print dollars and buy treasuries, and the Chinese central bank and foreign central banks continue to print their own currencies and buy dollars and buy treasuries. So we are the ones that are literally living on borrowed time. You've got to think, what is going to happen in America when, like Europe, we are forced to deal with the enormity of the consequences? If you look at our federal debt, which is the funded portion, is financed like a, like a subprime mortgage with a teaser rate, how is the U.S. government going to handle 5 or 10 percent interest rates on this national debt? 
How is the banking system in America going to handle it when all their assets are imploding, their long-term government bonds and mortgages that they have on their books, and they can't get cheap money from anymore Men- from the Fed? What men- happens to our housing market? Mentioning pay. There's a lot of pessimism about the U.S. on this side. That's a, a fair way to argue this because there's a two-part, this is a two-part argument, China up and U.S. down. So they're more heavily, I would say, on U.S. down than China up. You guys are – Well, uh, people inside China are not very optimistic either about the country's uh, future prospects. Uh, the, uh, the high growth period for China is over. I urge you to read the World Bank's uh, latest report on China called China 2030. Uh, it's free uh, for downloading on World Bank's website. This is what it says. From now on until 2030, if China does well, its average growth will be somewhere between 6 and 7%. And if China does not do the set of reforms the World Bank recommended, probably China cannot even achieve a much reduced level of uh, uh, growth because China is coming into an era where savings will be a lot lower, the population will be a lot older, the environmental costs will be a lot more visible. If you, uh, I'm sure a lot of you have been to Beijing. In the future, when you're Beijing, you should bring along a spacesuit. What is, the mes- what, is the message- what is the message that's getting out to the developing world? Who do they want to be more? Do, they- do developing countries want to be us, or do they want to be China? I'll put that to either side wants to take it. Orville Shell, why don't you take it? Well, I think it's interesting. It's still, the United States has tremendous luster. I mean, it is a great dream machine, and we have a great country, and many Chinese would like to live here. But what is interesting in the last two years is the number of Chinese who've gone home. And they've gone home because they see opportunity, They feel, anyone who's been to China lately feels an amazing sense of energy. And I would have to say that these great American virtues of get it done, whatever it takes, can do, I feel, and I'm surprised, more and more have been incarnate in China and less and less in America. Ian Bremmer, same question. Um, Yeah, I, I don't think that China has that kind of luster internationally, and it's part because the Chinese system is really one that is focused on China period. I mean, one of the major problems China has is that for them to build a state capitalist system, they have to support China and the Chinese market, where the system that the United States supports is really one of having as much access to global competition and markets as possible, right? And, and ultimately, that's a much more efficient system. The United States corporations benefit from, from it. We're the ones that are pushing the WTO. We're the ones that have been pushing the Doha round. When that doesn't work, we go for the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the TPP. We want broader markets. The Chinese are saying, no, for 4G, we want a Chinese standard. Now, I understand that uh, they'd rather have a Chinese standard than an American standard, but the point is the Chinese are saying we want a Chinese standard as opposed to a global standard. That, m- other countries don't like that. Th- they want more efficiency. And from that perspective, Chinese incursion into the, fr- the global free market. My last book was called The End of the Free Market. Not because I thought the United States wasn't going to have a free market anymore, but because I thought that the rise of China as the world's second largest economy eroded what had been global free markets and competition and actually poses an enormous problem for third-party countries. As China gets larger, that challenge grows. And so not only their domestic challenges, but they will have greater international challenges. I want to go to audience questions now, and what will happen is if you raise your hand, um, I'll point to you. If you can stand up, tell us who you are, and a microphone will come to you. Um, Hold the microphone about this distance away from your mouth so that the radio broadcast can hear you quite clearly. Um, And... uh, and I, I really urge you to keep this on topic, to look at what the motion is, 
to figure out whether your question actually gets these guys talking about something that focuses on, on the motion itself. And I just need to say this for radio. We're in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have two teams of two debating this motion, China Does Capitalism Better Than America? Questions from the audience. In the front row. Um, I just want to say, if you're sitting in shadow, uh, and if you can't see the numbers on your wristwatch, I can't see you. Uh, so if you want to ask a question, if you could step forward down the stairs, and uh, I'll try to call on you from there. Sir. I'm Norbert Swisslocky. I lived in China for five years. <clears throat> Chinese workers are known for their hard work. Uh, this is a question on labor. Uh, to, what, to what extent does the uh, labor market in China fuel Chinese economy, whereas the labor market in the United States seems to thwart it? Benching Pei, why don't you take that first, then we'll come to okay. you. Okay. Um, the labor market in China uh, is still not as free as it appears to be. What China has done in uh, terms of sp uh, making its growth faster is to move a lot of labor from agriculture into the cities. The, the moment they, that happens, automatically they produce a lot more because that's in urban areas, their jobs actually pay them more. So that's one. Uh, but in terms of labor mobility, uh, rural migrants in China still suffer a lot of discrimination because if they move to cities, I'm sure some of your workers have the experience, they do not enjoy the benefits of urban residents. For example, they have to stand there. They, they cannot enroll their kids in public schools. They have to send them to substandard uh, private schools. And they do not enjoy any retirement pension uh, protection. That's available only for state workers. And, and Ching, how, how is that statement ammunition for you on this motion? Oh, that for the motion, which is that if you look at the labor market per se, you would say China's uh, labor market is not as free, as well developed, or even regulated than the U.S. Uh, well, I would argue that our, our labor market is hardly a bastion of freedom either. I mean, uh, first of all, we have a minimum wage law that effectively uh, makes it illegal to hire a pretty, you know, sizable chunk of our population that can't get a job. Uh, but even uh, for the Americans who are employed, you have the go the government uh, dictating uh, to employers uh, all sorts of, uh, you know. Uh, criteria upon which they have to base their decisions on who to hire and who to promote. And there's all sorts of mandates that, uh, as an employer, you are required. You have to do this. You have to do that, at, at, at often at great expense to yourself. So I, I, I don't think you have a lot of freedom in, in, in the U.S. labor markets. There are so many different ways you can be sued as an employer in this country that a lot of people uh, do what they can to avoid hiring people because they don't want to get within the crosshairs of the government or the legal system that is that, that has sprung as a result of all, all these mandates. So I, I would think that if you're uh, an, an, an employer in China and you're, you're hiring people, I don't think that you have to worry about that as much as an employer in America, uh, that, that you're, you're going to be sued by your employee because you, you, know, they, they, you, you passed them over for a promotion or maybe you didn't hire somebody and they want to sue you and claim it's because of you know, your handicap or you're a different race. And I, I think you have more freedom there. And, and to try to you know, I mean, I don't know if you and, want to hold And to up. nail it to the motion, you're saying, though, that, that those conditions make it a better form of, a, a more efficient form of capitalism. Well, I think the, the fewer rules that you have, I think in, in labor, employees and employers should be free to negotiate with one another over the terms of their employment without any interference whatsoever from government. Right in the center, sir. Um, 
very center. And uh, no, uh, not you, sir. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the person who is standing should continue to stand and wait for a microphone. Thank you very much. Uh, my question is for the panelists in favor of the motion. While you're arguing the same conclusion, it seems to me that your premises are at odds with each other, if I understand them correctly. On the one hand, Mr. Shell seems to say that for America to do capitalism better, we need more top-down planning by government, presumably, while Mr. Schiff is arguing that we need much less of that and more undirected, mm. bottom-up uh, economy. Could you reconcile the drivers behind your <laughs> conclusions? Um, I want to well, see this. <laughs> the complex answer to your question is no. <laughs> I guess it would be a debate within a debate, but... Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I, I don't think the solution is for America to become less free and to try to emulate what China does wrong, uh, but to pick up on what China is doing right. And I think China needs to uh, do the same thing, not uh, follow the, the, the poor example of modern America and all the things that we've done to wreck our capitalist economy, but to turn back the clock and to try to incorporate the system and the values uh, that were enshrined in the Constitution by the framers. I think that is real capitalism. You know what's interesting? I'm, I, I like to sort of have a gender balance. I don't see a single woman raising her hand anywhere. And I, am I wrong? Right. Shout out. Thank you. I heard that. I, I do see you right down front. Hi, my name is McKinnon Webster. I was curious that no one mentioned human rights once um, this evening, and I'm wondering if you think that that plays a role in a debate on capitalism. You know, I think uh, uh, the uh, United States has, over the last decade, been not exactly exemplary as an evangelist for human rights, which has stilled our, our voice to some degree. And this is an aspect of the Chinese system which uh, is not exemplary. And we don't need to and wouldn't want to imitate it. But uh, having said that, I think uh, we have to be honest that authoritarian capitalism has been able to do things that uh, a freer form of capitalism sometimes fails to be able to do. Well, that's Ian was I mean, God forbid you're forced to hand hire disabled people, right? Right. Uh, yes. That's, but... But we can't compare human rights in the United States with China, obviously. The U.S. still makes, does a lot of things wrong. It's like this broader debate. The U.S. does a lot of things wrong on capitalism, but it's still vastly more effective than China. The U.S. has a lot of problems in human rights, but China isn't in the same league, right, and on the same league sheets. Let's be very clear. And while I think that a certain level of human rights abuses facilitates rapacious capitalism, especially in the short term, at the long, in the long term, it will bite you in the hiney, right? And, and there are other places that you get problems, too. I did talk about transparency and the fact that places like Facebook and Google and Twitter are a problem for China because they want to own that data. They want to control it. They want to shape it. They want Chinese state internet, just like they have state capitalism. That's a problem for them. Um, when I think about, you know, responses in terms of general transparency, um, you know, in, in, in the United States, you know, you do actually know largely what your officials are up to. Look, Solyndra was a disaster. It's a bad thing for the United States. Peter and I will agree on that, right? But we found out about it, right? And we found, and, and it, it was on, on balance. I mean, people got egg on face. 
In China, they don't want to tell you about Solyndra. You don't have media that's getting inside the, the, you know, sort of the dirty laundry of serious Chinese officials. They are engineers that run the country. They're also billionaires. Let's remember that, okay? And, and that's the problem of the lack of human rights and transparency in China. It doesn't facilitate creative destruction. It doesn't facilitate allowing the Chinese people to take advantage of a free market. Maybe the Chinese people would be just as good capitalists as we are, but unfortunately, their system doesn't allow it to be. That's a problem. You know, Peter if you're going to get into the argument that if, if a, a government can require or dictate to a, a private employer and say you have to hire somebody with a disability, that doesn't create what rights. That diminishes individual rights. What you're doing is you're, you're creating a special privilege uh, for one particular protected class. And when you do that, you diminish freedom and you diminish liberty in the country. But apart from that, you create all sorts of problems for the businesses because now the businesses have to spend all sorts of money to protect themselves against lawsuits. So and you demi- to, e- 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 and, and, and in many Peter, cases, to, to people the, that would have tried to bend over backwards to hire the disabled, now they won't touch them because they're too afraid of getting sued. To the question, to the question as it was put then, does human rights have any relevance to this debate about capitalism, you're saying, yes, it, it does. It gets in the well, way I mean, of capitalism. Well, I mean, are you differentiating? No. Are you differentiating human rights from individual rights? I mean, I believe in individual freedom, and I believe in okay. rights, and, it's, and it certainly is part of the discussion. And the question is, where do you have more individual freedom or individual liberty? Do you have more right now in, in China, or do you have more in the United States? And my argument earlier is that the typical person in China is going to surrender less of his economic output to his government uh, in the form of taxation. And I don't think his day-to-day life is going to be as impacted as heavily as, as, as they are in America as far as regulations. But, you know, we have, you know, as far as uh, trial, look, they're political prisoners in the United States, too. It's not just, uh, not just in China. I mean, my father's in prison for po- politics, I believe, in this country. Uh, there's a gentleman wearing, a, I believe, a green necktie. Everybody's going like this now. So. Yes, sir. I, I just need to get the microphone to you. Thank you. Uh, Barry Belgarad, considering that our government uh, owes 100% of GDP, spends 40% of GDP, just took over one-seventh of the economy in, in uh, the face of health care, uh, owns a big part of uh, our biggest heavy equipment manufacturing, which is Detroit, uh, and regulates very heavily the financial industry. Do we truly have capitalism in this country? Well, I already said we don't. I mean, we're not, even, we're not even close to having capitalism. We have – if I was trying to figure out a word that described it, it's fascism. That's really what we have. Oh. Um, and and those of you who are those of you who are uh, don't understand what it is. It's not it's not fascism like Hitler. He doesn't or, or Mussolini. But it's the economic system. It's it's a socialist system where the government takes over the means of production through taxation and regulation. And that's what we have. I mean, any business. I own my business. But the U.S. government makes a lot more money from my business than I do. I mean, it's not even close. The amount of money I earn running my business is tiny in comparison to the taxes the government collects from my business. So the government has effectively nationalized my business. And Peter, just may I respectfully company. say uh, that the subject of your, our discussion your uh, is really now. not this. Uh, the, 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 what we're really discussing is which economy does marketization best. Okay. Well, Ian Bremmer decided to just let all of that happen (laughs) and not respond to mentioning that. I would say uh, to to use debt as a measure of capitalism is not right. 
because private companies can borrow 200% of the equity and still be private. I think the best measure of whether a country is capitalist is to look at the contribution to GDP from state-owned companies. And here the U.S. cannot even compare. In China, state-owned companies contribute 40% to GDP. In the U.S., I don't know about GM. The U.S. is getting out of GM, incidentally. Now, probably less than 1%. So rest assured, we're still very capitalist. Well, you, you can't compare, though, government debt to corporate debt. If a corporation borrows, it does so uh, to increase its productivity. It's acquiring income-generating assets that enable it to service that debt and retire the debt. So that's productive debt. When you're talking about the federal debt, you're talking about money that has been borrowed and spent on consumption, on government, no, and there's no means of repaying it. You're no, looking uh, at the federal government is not consumer. It is a producer of public goods. It doesn't produce. It's a giant consumer. What is it producing? No, when your company goes abroad to invest, where is the security it gets, security services gets from? I think the Pentagon, for one thing, actually does something in return for the U.S. Orville Shell, do you want to button this before we move on? No. <laughs> Another question. Sir. Hi, my name is Guy Wiggins. I just wanted to hear from the panel their thoughts on how the one-child policy has affected um, capitalism in China and what the future means when you have far more men than women and how that's going to basically, I think, lead to all kinds of irrationalities and inefficiencies uh, in the market. I wondered how you were going to turn that to the motion. That was very good. That was very good. Well, here, here I would say the uh, advantage is emphatically on the American side because we have immigration. China does not, and China has one of the most rapidly aging populations, and the lower reaches are not being replenished with the one-child policy, so it's going to have a huge burden of taking care of elderly people and not have younger people coming in on the bottom to support them. That's going to be a giant problem. I agree with Orville, not surprisingly. Uh, and... and <laughs> Furthermore, um, it also leads China to export not just capital when they try to extract commodities, for example, in sub-Saharan Africa, but also labor because they need to do something with those men. That's a problem for African countries that want to have employment in addition to Chinese cash, and eventually it leads to a backlash. Again, Chinese state capitalism is a problem not just because of domestic inefficiencies, but because of the backlash it creates globally. That's one we haven't started to experience yet because China isn't big enough yet, but as it gets bigger, it's going to get squeezed. I think a lot of that is going to be taken care of through liberalized immigration. I think women are going to come into China, particularly when the Chinese standard of living is allowed to rise based on a stronger RMB and when the Chinese no longer have to devote such vast resources to propping up the U.S. economy and their own economy is that much more prosperous, I think you're going to see uh, more immigrants coming into China. Can you, just because you used the term of art, can you explain to our radio audience RMB? The, 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 the currency, the Chinese RMB, the, the yuan. Ma'am. Uh, fourth row, back. Um, I wanted, before uh, getting to can you start again? Thanks. Um, before getting into the debate, how do you define capitalism? You talk about a lot of different elements of. Uh, um, can you can 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 you? Uh, we missed a little bit of the beginning, and just for the broadcast, we need also. To, I'm going to stop talking in a second, and then if you can start. Thanks. Go ahead. Uh, I want to ask um, each panel how you define capitalism. You talk about. I think different elements that uh, uh, contribute to capitalism, well, obviously 
America does something better, and I mean China does something better. If you keep on comparing one to one, you know we never get to a conclusion. How do you? China does five things better than uh, America. America does the five other things better. How do you define which one you? Okay, use? rather than go one, two, three, four, I just want to let each side pick somebody to answer that question. I'm assuming you okay. agree with each other. Peter Schiff, do you want to take a side? Sure. <laughs> take a side four. Well, I mean. I, uh, capitalism to me is where the means of production are controlled completely uh, privately, where uh, the factors of production, production, land, labor, and capital are allocated through a market where prices for all goods and services, wages, interest rates are set by the market as opposed to a centrally planned or socialist economy where a lot of these decisions are made by bureaucrats and where the means of production is being micromanaged from a centrally planned authority, where they're making decisions based on politics. This should be produced, that should be reproduced, this should be favored, that should be favored. And whether the government does it directly, like a communist would, by nationalizing the means of production and actually owning them, or whether it takes a different route by controlling them through the tax code, through what it taxes and what it subsidies and how it regulates and what businesses it favors and what it punishes. You know, when you start doing that, you don't have capitalism, you have something else. So by that definition, oh, neither China you. nor the United States is capitalism. Well, that's what I started. I, I yeah. said the question should be which country does it worse, not which one does it better. Well, uh, I cannot have said better. I think that's the best description of the Chinese economic system, <laughs> the part about what capitalism is not. Uh, but I would add one more thing. I think modern capitalism also has a legal system, the rule of law. Without the rule of law, there can be no capitalism. And China does not have rule of law. Sir, I'll just let the mic come to you. A name, please. Uh, yeah, my name is Dan O'Connor. I'm running for U.S. Congress here in New York City uh, as a Democrat. 100,000 Chinese people in my district. I lived in China for six years, and... Uh, uh, I, I think in order to engage in this debate, we should defer, define the term capitalism. And I think I think Peter did define that term. I do think you're all very erudite and you're and and very articulate in comparing the two systems. But I think in terms of capitalism, uh, Peter did define that. Uh, but also, I, I I don't think it's fair to use World Bank figures because they're not on the ground Sorry, in China. Sorry, I, I need to get you to okay. a question. Please. Okay. Um, I, I actually. Just I guess to get right to the question, I'd like to hear a definition of capitalism from everyone. Okay. We, we just did that, but do you – I think we – all right. All right. We'll move on then. Uh, right here, sir. Let's wait. Hubbub down. Thank you. Joseph Konzelman. My question is as – China, like other low- and mid-income countries, moves up the value chain. It's going to eventually have to start to turn ideas into products instead of just assembling products. How do you expect that to occur in China, given the current status of intellectual property rights and in other, other related terms like that, where it's just very hard to create ideas and, and own them in China? Horrible show. This is a huge problem for China, and China is creating intellectual property, and as it does, I think it's going to bring itself to heel. Uh, one hopes it will, and it simply must, or it can't be a, a, a world player. But China must move up the value chain because labor is getting more expensive. They're just lower down than we are. America doesn't do much manufacturing anymore, not as much as it used to. It's had to move up the value chain into knowledge, information, technology. That's China's challenge, too. I think the question did its work for you. 
Do you, yeah. do you, do you want to comment on that? Uh, no, I, I think that it's, it's, it's absolutely a problem. Um, and I guess I would say that I, I'm more skeptical than Orville they're going to be able to do it. I, I, I see the problem as you do, be in part because the educational system doesn't support it. They create a lot of engineers, but they don't create a lot of entrepreneurs and a lot of innovators because they're still teaching by rote as opposed to teaching students to actually question, you know, sort of what's behind. I mean, there's a reason why so many folks that create things in the United States are college dropouts or, you know, sort of came from these kind of unusual background systems. And they, they really want to know not just, you know, what, what four times four is, but also, like, why it's, it, it works that way. That doesn't work well with an authoritarian system. Again, human rights are a part of that. Transparency is a part of it. I think when you look at the U.S. system, you, you have to put it all together. It works in part, and it's resilient in part because it's so integrated, the political and the economic, together. You can't take the politics out of the Chinese economic system. If you could, they'd be doing much better right now, and they'd, they'd have a longer-term trajectory that I'd be much more supportive of. Well, we're debating at this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, China does capitalism better than America. I'm John Donvan, your moderator. We have four debaters, two teams of two debating this motion, and we're taking questions from the audience. So. Thanks. Uh, I'm Peter Goodman with the Huffington Post and former Shanghai Bureau Chief of the Washington Post. I want to get your thoughts on how the growth slowdown plays out in China. Does that cause the state to double down on the state-owned sector and hang on to control state-owned enterprises, or does it tend tw toward more liberalization and attempt to get a little more vibrance out of the private sector? Are you putting your question to either side? Uh, anybody who, whose game, I'd particularly like to hear Ian Bremer and, and Minchin Pei and Orville, but anybody who wants to jump in. Okay. Minchin <laughs> <laughs> Pei. Uh, what the, uh, uh, as the, uh, as the World Bank's uh, diagnosis shows that the slowdown is coming, no matter what. Uh, the debate is when it's going to happen and uh, the speed at which the slowdown is going to happen. What the Chinese government is going to respond when there are two paths. One is to double down, as you said, to do the things they've been doing. That is a lot of investment in infrastructure uh, that's going to yield decreasing returns and growth will continue to slow and that will be a dead end. The other will be a very different uh, uh, trajectory. That is to really become capitalist, which means to uh, increase domestic consumption, to allocate uh, uh, capital much more efficiently. Incidentally, in China, the capital market, as we know it, does not exist. Most of the savings is allocated through state-controlled banking sector. So they've got to change that. In other, and they've got to privatize state-owned enterprises, lots and lots of things that can be done to avert that kind of dramatic slowdown. But that means China will have to do capitalism. Peter Schiff. No, I didn't think you wanted my. No, nope. <laughs> you're, you're here. Oh. you got to write. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think ultimately, and this is a bet that I'm making, that the Chinese are going to make, is the, the biggest problem that is, that is impeding economic growth in China is, is, is their currency peg and, and, and the misallocations of resources that are being created in that economy by their desire to prop up the dollar so that American consumers can keep buying Chinese products when, in effect, we're too poor to buy those products because we have nothing to export to pay for them. And I do believe that the Chinese are going to uh, see the error of their ways. And, and, and when they allow this change to happen, when they allow an, an appreciation in the value of, of, of their currency and they allow their citizens to more fully reap the rewards of, of their hard work and their savings, I think you're going to see a much greater growth trajectory in China. And I think a lot of some of the problems that we're discussing, we'll, we'll discussing here will, will, will go away 
as the Chinese economy is allowed to prosper and the government gets out of the way and lets it happen. Right down front here. My name is Miles London. Uh, my question has to do with capitalism implies that there is a capital market. The fact that the U.S. and Europe, for that matter, uh, has promoted the idea for the general, for the better of the general good, to haircut bondholders in order to save stockholders, is that driving the U.S. capitalism? to be more like the Chinese ca uh, capitalism, as has been described. No one is excited. Well, I, no, you know, in the, in the original... Oh, all right. Well, uh, Peter Schiff. Well, in, you know, in the original you know, Wall Street bailouts, it was the stockholders that, in many cases, absorbed the losses. The bondholders got bailed out. Uh, but... To your point, in the long run, we are going to wipe out the bondholders, and we're going to do it through either de inflation or default. Most likely it will be inflation. I mean, it could be default, but the more likely outcome is that we simply print so much money uh, that the bondholders are deprived of their purchasing power. And that, you know, that is not a free market. Uh, a free market would have sound money. It wouldn't have the government, uh, you know, issuing a currency by fiat and then deciding to punish uh, savers at the expense of debtors, which is going to happen in the United States, especially when you realize that the U.S. government, being the largest debtor of us all, uh, is going to benefit more from inflation than any other debtor. I think there's a broad question here that is very interesting. The, the question of is the United States going to have to become a little bit more like China in this environment as the global market becomes a little bit less free? And, and, and I think that Part, part of the reason I'm skeptical it will happen is because the U.S. government is so badly set up to do it. I mean, I can't even write an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal and include the words uh, industrial policy, right, because it's just it's a no-man's land, right? Nobody wants to talk about it. People in, in the State Department have said, oh, we can't talk about industrial policy, even though it's kind of what we're thinking about, right? Instead, we say economic statecraft. Um, U.S. <laughs> U.S. corporations don't want to coordinate with their competitors. They don't want to talk to the U.S. government on this stuff the way that in Japan you would if you're in the Keidan Ren. Japan has METI, the Ministry of Economy, Trade, and Industry. In the United States, we've got Commerce, which is not exactly where we keep our best bureaucrats. And then, you know, then we've got USTR, which is separate, actually much more capable. You've got Energy, which is separate. You've got the State Department, which owns a lot of this, but has very few people who have the background in the private sector. So the U.S. is very badly set up to actually do state capitalism, and I, and I think that they won't. Um, but but I, I do think it's going to become an issue we're going to debate a lot more, actually, in this country. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so a, a quick ahead. comment. You know, I think what Ian said is very true. I was recently on the Vice President Xi's visit, and we went to California, and I was there with Governor Brown to meet him and meet a bunch of governors. Every one of those governors and party secretaries came with ten guys in black suits, you know, for trade, for energy, for manufacturing. Brown had me you know, a non-paid friend. And it was very evident to me that the state capitalism of China had this incredible sort of plug-in mechanism, and we didn't have a socket. And I think that's going to have to change if we want to do business with China. These guys wanted to do business. They love California, and they can't find a way to do it. We need it. Okay, we have time for one more question. And uh, last question, sir. Blue shirt. My name's 
Hello, my name is Ed Sapin. First of all, thank you all for being here tonight. It's, uh, it's pretty striking to me we've been talking about capitalism. I haven't really heard much discussion about entrepreneurship. So I'd be curious to hear from the panelists, what's your view of the link between entrepreneurship and capitalism, and which country does it better? Orville Shell. Well, I have to say, uh, I mean, this is something America does exceedingly well. This is the part of American capitalism that really works. Our innovation, our scaling, our bringing stuff to market, scaling it up, Silicon Valley. And China does this less well. But I have to say, I've been around this block for a number of decades. And what I see happening in China is a lot of incredibly interesting self-made entrepreneurs bubbling up from underneath. Where they go where the private sector of the economy goes. When, can it become the majority sector? That remains to be seen. But this is a very vibrant place. Don't write it so off for one innovation. second. There is innovation. There is innovation, not full spectrum. They don't have Nobel laureates yet at this far end. But there is innovation. These guys are crafty. They're good. They're smart. And boy, they're on a roll. Entrepreneurship isn't, you know, we think about somebody starting a high-tech company. I mean, an entrepreneur could just be a guy that goes out and, you know, starts a fruit stand or a supermarket. You don't have to be innovative, but what you have to do is be able to uh, take control of, 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 of people and, 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 and property and put them together and run a business in a way to generate a profit. And there are a lot of entrepreneurs making a lot of profit in China. Uh, they're they're not, not there. There are a lot of them, and the population of entrepreneurs is growing and are self-made millionaires in China, and more and more of them are being created. And that is going to continue, and that's a function of gaining more freedom and moving away from uh, a centrally planned economy and grabbing more of uh, free market principles. And as I said earlier, I think that as a young person in China wanting to start a small business, whatever it is, I think that young person in China is going to have a better chance of succeeding than his counterpart here. I think there will be fewer obstacles placed in his path okay. by government uh, to that success. Okay. Uh, I think that young person will be so shocked to hear this because this, these are the facts. If you are a private entrepreneur in China, you cannot go into, you cannot open a private bank. You cannot get into telecom services. You cannot get into energy. You cannot get into national resources. You cannot get into 14 other very important sectors because these are the sectors reserved for state-owned companies. You cannot get bank loans. Uh, you don't have secure property rights. Uh, if you get into a dispute with another entrepreneur, with another businessman, whether you win that dispute does not depend on whether you have a good case. It depends on whether you know the Communist Party secretary in charge of the legal system. And that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. And here's where we are. We are about to hear brief closing statements from each debater in turn. They will be two minutes each. Remember how you voted before the debate, because this is their last chance to convince you that they have argued best. And you're going to be asked to vote again once they finish these statements a few minutes from now, and you will pick the winner by doing so. But first, on to round three closing statements closing statements by each debater in turn. Our motion is, China does capitalism better than America. And here to summarize his position against the motion, Ian Bremer, he is president of Eurasia Group and author of the upcoming book, Every Nation for Itself, Winners and Losers in a G-Zero World. Thank you very much. Uh, 
my, my colleague, partner mentioned, just talked about all the things you couldn't do to set up in China in terms of entrepreneurship, but he didn't mention fruit stands. <laughs> Those you can, and perhaps there's a Tunisian model in the future for China. That's, <laughs> I think it's an interesting question. Um, look, I, 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 thought I'd, I, thought I'd end, I thought I would end with the future. Um, you know, one of the things the United States does better than anyone else in the world is creative destruction. I like independent bookstores, but I tell you, when Amazon came along, right, they got smashed. That may not be a society that you all want to live in. You may like independent bookstores, but a society does capitalism better. We see that all over the place. Creative destruction is what powers the American market. The single biggest game-changing innovation in the world today is fracking and unconventional oil. It is changing the nature of global energy. It is overwhelmingly dominated by U.S. universities and research, U.S. entrepreneurs, a bunch of Canadians in there too, don't want to forget my friends to the north, and U.S.-based multinational corporations. This matters. I know that the Chinese are doing more patents. They're increased. They're small. They're engineering patents. There's slight improvements on processes. Don't take away from them. They're very smart in China. They're being educated well. They're great. But if you want to talk about the game-changing stuff that you want to bet on that's going to make the world work over the next 20 years, overwhelmingly that stuff is being driven in the United States of America. I don't know if it's Bill Gates' new battery technology that's going to work and be the next game-changer. It's going to be in biotech. It's going to be in nanotech. But if you want to make that bet, and by the way, the Chinese Central Bank wants to make it too, you're going to make it here. I love the fact that we live in a society as well where broad ideologies can come together, work together, and make lots of money. I applaud the fact that we live in a place that a guy like Peter Schiff can make an enormous coin for himself, and I think you guys should too. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ian Bremer. Our motion is China does capitalism better than America. And now, to summarize his position for the motion, Peter Schiff, he is CEO and Chief Global Strategist of Euro-Pacific Capital. He is also author of the upcoming book, The Real Crash, A Blueprint for a Bankrupt America. Peter Schiff. Rebuilding. Um, well, I think, you know, part of the problem having this debate at this particular point in time, it would kind of be like having a debate in 2005 over which country does real estate better, uh, the United States or, or China. Because in 2005, everybody thought it was great uh, in the U.S. for the housing market. Everybody was buying a house, even the people that couldn't afford them. Everybody had second homes, and, uh, and it was great. But, of course, it was a bubble, and it couldn't last. And that's the same thing with the U.S. economy. If you want to uh, look at the U.S. economy and measure it by how much money we spend and, and how much we consume, and you look at some of these statistics that you reference about our competitiveness, uh, when the reality is if we were so competitive, where are all the products and, and, and why do we have a huge trade deficit? I think what's really happening here is we have a bubble in the entire economy, and it is based on excess consumption, excess debt. The Chinese – they're not making a big bet on the U.S. Treasury market because they want to. It's because they think they have to. If they can wave a wand and replace all their treasuries with gold, they'd do it. The problem is they're afraid because they know if they try to sell, they'll crush the market. But we are on the verge of this collapse, and it's because we abandon all the principles of capitalism that we once had. And these are the principles that China is now adopting. And as I said earlier, what's really more important is the pendulum and the direction in which it's swinging. Look at where we started from co complete capitalism, and China started, they had none of it. And look at how much ground we've surrendered, and look at how much the Chinese have gained. Is China perfect? Not at all. 
They still have a lot, uh, to, a lot of progress to make, but they are making that progress. The problem with us is we're still moving in the wrong direction, and we're moving in that direction more rapidly. And when we actually have our crisis, when we have a sovereign debt crisis, when the dollar plunges, and we really have to confront the grim reality of our situation, the fact that we've been living beyond our means for generations and it has to come to an end, then we can have this debate again, and I think we'll have a much different reaction in the audience as to how well America does capitalism. Thank you, Peter Schiff. Our motion is China does capitalism better than America, and here to summarize his position against the motion, Minxing Pei, professor of government at Claremont McKenna and author of China's Trapped Transition, The Limits of Developmental Autocracy. Does China do capitalism better than the U.S.? We have to add one adjective. China does do a certain kind of capitalism better than the U.S. That's crony capitalism. And I don't think Americans want to excel in that category. Uh, it, because in China, uh, under that kind of capitalism, you're not going to get clean air to breathe. You're afraid to buy baby formula because if you have babies in the household, you better go to Hong Kong to buy imported baby formula because crony capitalism cannot provide food safety. And if you are part of the elite, crony capitalism serves you really well because I've read that elites in China, political elites, are now installing air filtering systems in their cars, in their homes, what about ordinary people? The vision of capitalism Peter champions is a vision of 19th century capitalism. Thank God America has come a long way and will not go back. Let's also imagine 20 years from now, which system will be there? I can safely bet 20 years from now, democracy, democratic capitalism will still be around in the U.S. But can you say this? about the Communist Party in China in the next 20 years with this kind of capitalism? I'm not so sure. My bet is that it will not be there. So at the end of the day, it will be American capitalism that triumphs over crony capitalism. Thank you, Minxing Pei. This is our motion, China does capitalism better than America. And here to summarize his position in support of the motion, Orville Schell, an award-winning journalist and director of Asia Society Center on U.S.-China Relations. Well, Minxin, amen. Uh, I really want to agree with you, and I truly hope you're right. It would be nice. Um, but who would have thought five or ten years ago that we would be sitting here tonight even having this debate, that there would be any kind of uh, equilibrium even to discuss between these two great economic systems. No one. 20 years ago, impossible. 30 years ago, when I first went to China, it was unthinkable. Um, China is undeniably in transition. Uh, we are a more finished product trying to regain our balance. And I worry about the United States. I think we have a good model, but I think we haven't we haven't played it very well. I think we've deceived ourselves. I think we've fallen into a lot of uh, self-deception about what has made this country great and strong. It's a combination between regulation and control and wisdom at the top, setting an equitable and fair system, and a free market with a vibrant 
set of entrepreneurs and innovators at the bottom. China is still trying to find its balance between these, these things. I don't know where they're going to go. I don't know how it's going to end up. I can't see the future for us or them. But I can see the last five or ten years. And I think everyone in this room should acknowledge that despite all its imperfections, despite the human rights questions, despite all of these other things, that what China has accomplished, as counterintuitive as it was, no one could have predicted it, is pretty extraordinary. Something has been working pretty well. We don't know where it's going to go in the future. And uh, all we can do is sit and wait. But if we want to fix something, we're not going to fix China. The question is, are we going to fix ourselves? Thank you, Orville Schell. And that concludes our closing statements. And now it's time to learn which side our live audience feels has argued best. We're going to ask you to go to the keypad at your seat that will register your vote. And we're going to get the readout on this almost instantaneously. Our motion is China does capitalism better than America. If you feel the side arguing for this motion, this side argued best, press number one. If you feel this side, press number two. And if you became or remain undecided, push number three. And we'll lock out the votes uh, almost instantly. And while we're waiting for them, uh, I'm going to just do a little bit of housekeeping. First of all, uh, Peter, did I get the name of your book wrong? Did I? I said the real crash, a blueprint for a bankrupt America. Rebuilding a bankrupt All right. America. That's a very important missing word. Yeah. So, yeah. so I do want to try to rebuild it. No, no, no. I'm, I, I'm, I'm working on a book, and if in front of an audience like this, somebody got the name wrong, I would, I would want to shoot myself. So I, I want to – I'm going to – Actually, it's actually – it's the real crash. America's uh, – America's, no, actually, that's not even it. It's the real crash. America's coming bankruptcy. How to save yourself and your country. That's the title. Well <laughs> – Really, that's the title? Yeah, that is it. Yeah. Because I would, I would really like to say it correctly so that we can edit yeah, it you know, the, the radio broadcast. That was an old working title, which got changed. So the, the title that is actually on the book, that will be on the book stands in May, is The All Real right. Crash. The Real Crash. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I want to say this. America's practice. coming bankruptcy. Yeah, How to right. save yourself and your country. All right. I'm pretty sure that's it. <laughs> I hope so, because I'm trying to memorize it. The Real Crash. America's coming bankruptcy. And how to save yourself, save yourself and your country. And your country. Yes. All right. Peter Schiff, CEO and Chief Global Strategist of Euro Pacific Capital and author of the upcoming book, The Real Crash. Something really bad. <laughs> Something terrible. I'm sorry. We're going to have to edit around it. Well, the title's not even finished at this point. The, the, the real crash, America's coming bankruptcy, how to save yourself and your country. All right. Some, yeah. Some yes. Yeah. You can buy it on Amazon since you like it so much. You can pre-order it. Our next debate <laughs> our next debate is coming up on uh, April 17th, and here's our motion. When it comes to politics, the Internet is closing our minds. Speaking for the motion, we'll have Eli Pariser. He is a pioneering online organizer and board president of MoveOn.org. His book, The Filter Bubble, three words, uh, was the <laughs> so easy, so easy was the inspiration for this debate. Um, his partner uh, booked is Lawrence Lessig, a law professor at Harvard and one of the country's preeminent legal scholars. He's been called the philosopher king of internet law by the New York Times and the Elvis of cyber law by Wired magazine. 
Against the motion, we're going to have Yevgeny Morozov, who is a journalist and author of The Net Delusion. He uh, bemoans what he calls slacktivism, which is uh, defined by him as the tendency of the Internet to distract the population from any type of serious political engagement. And his partner, Jacob Weisberg, who first joined the online magazine Slate back in 1996, that's when people were just figuring out what the Internet was, and today he is the chairman and editor-in-chief of the Slate Group. I also want to say uh, that... Uh, we, we, I think all of us who are in, with Intelligence Squared are delighted by the spirit with which this panel came to this debate tonight, uh, the level of arguments, the fact that you stuck to ideas, that it didn't get nasty or personal but was thoughtful and provocative. I want to thank you for the way that you've conducted yourself. <laughs> And, and also to the audience questions that were on point and really did help move this debate along. Thank you to all of you who stood up and asked questions. Okay, okay and uh, so I now have the results. It's all in. We have asked you to vote twice, once before the debate and once again after the debate. This is the, the final result on who wins this argument, according to our live audience here. Our motion is China does capitalism better than America. Before the debate, 17% of you were in favor of the motion, 50% against, and 33% undecided. After the debate, 9% are for the motion. That's down 8%. 85% support the motion. That's up 35%. 6% are undecided. The team arguing against the motion, China does capitalism better than America, wins this debate. Our congratulations to them. And thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S. We will see you next time.